Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 170. Family. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, or two... Uh, taking them or it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, and trying to figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, family. But before we talk about family, wait, wait, ta- are we, wait, are we, we're talking about my family? No. Okay. All right. Good. Because that, that's the rule. I've always heard that that's the rule. Like, you can talk about your family, but you can't talk about my family. And the same applies. I guess I can talk about my own family, but can't talk about your family. Okay. Right? Okay. I guess, yeah. We're going to talk about Picard's family. Ooh. Yeah. And, sounds and juicy. And yeah. Worf's family, actually. Oh, even juicier. Yeah, I know. The whole thing gets a little... Well, we'll get into it. But before we do that, uh, if you have some family stories of your own that you'd like to share with us, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can. Our number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents and many, many, many other things. There's a comment section there, I hear. <laughs> missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, and one of the other things that we'll talk about, a little, uh, a little family history... Or maybe we'll just do trivia. <laughs> All right. So today's episode, Family, was written by Ronald D. Moore. And we mentioned last time in Best of Both Worlds that uh, Ron Moore was really excited about the idea of extending this story arc beyond the two episodes that were originally planned. And this was one way to do it. Although there are no Borg here, his idea was to keep the character arc going by directly following the aftermath of the last encounter through Captain Picard. Gene Roddenberry hated it. <laughs> he really, really hated it. Really? Uh, he, yeah, he flat out refused since there was no action, no science fiction element to the story. And it was Rick Berman and Michael Piller who told Moore, don't worry about it, that they would take care of Gene. And somehow they did. They actually talked him into it. Um, and Ron Moore said, hey, I just I stayed out of the way and let them do their thing. Um there were attempts to infuse a little sci-fi action into subplots, but ultimately none of those worked out. So that idea was abandoned, and they just went with the family plotline. Also, getting a credit here are uh, Suzanne Lambden and Brian Stewart, who had uh, come in with the idea for the holodeck Jack Crusher in a different script, and it, but it was still Ron Moore who uh, rewrote this. Directed by Les Landau. We've talked about him quite a bit. And this week, you will see a new name in the credits, Jerry Taylor. She's a supervising producer, and she actually came to the show as a co-writer on the episode Suddenly Human. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. It'll be the fourth episode we see in season four, but it was the second one produced. So all of these are a bit out of order for the first four episodes. Um, She had a successful producing and writing career before coming to Star Trek. Credits on uh, Quincy M.E., Magnum P.I., Jake and the Fat Man, and much more. She even wrote a couple of episodes of the Andy Griffith vehicle, Salvage One. Ooh. Yeah, you remember that? Right? I remember that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess we're the only two. No, no, no. Uh, I have another friend, actually, who occasionally will watch it. I think he found it on YouTube or something. Oh, cool. Probably I shouldn't say that publicly because now somebody will rip it down. 
Yeah, <laughs> right. But yeah, I had a friend who actually pinged me in the middle of the night one time. He was like, I'm watching this stupid movie you've never heard of, Salvage One. I was like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Have they done the part yet where they drive on the racetrack and they go really slow because that's how they're going to get out of the atmosphere? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he kind of lost it. Wow, well, the three of us can have a salvage one convention. That's uh, going to be our ninth yeah. podcast, I think. Yeah, I guess it will. All right. <laughs> well, it's only about a season and a half. Um, but there's a lot more to come from Jerry Taylor. Uh, many, many contributions to Star Trek. And we will, of course, talk more about her later as we progress. Now, Labar. Labar is an actual place in France. Very small town in the east, not terribly far from the Swiss border. Um, I found this really interesting. In 1793, the population was 81. In 2015, the population was 110. Wow. So giving him the key to the city, it's really just like it's his turn to hold it. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. It literally is someone's house. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Um, now, now, funny enough, the history of Labar has kind of been overtaken by the fictional history of the Picard family. It's sort of like Riverside, Iowa being the birthplace of Kirk. You know, not really on the map until we decided that that was the birthplace for Captain Kirk. Then people know about it. Um, the Picard house, in this case, was actually in Encino. Um, and the interiors were on a soundstage at Paramount, of course. And the vineyard exteriors were shot about an hour almost exactly due north of Los Angeles in Lancaster, California. Loads of guest stars in this episode. Uh, British-born Jeremy Kemp plays Robert Picard. He started in English TV in the 50s, then transitioned into film. He guest starred on Space 1999, Greatest American Hero, Heart to Heart, uh, plus the massive miniseries Winds of War and War and Remembrance. In films, you may have seen him in A Bridge Too Far, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and the comedy Top Secret. Marie is played by veteran actress Samantha Egar, also British, also started in TV in the early 60s, appeared on The Saint. Uh, She was in Cary Grant's last film, Walk, Don't Run, in 1966. She was also in Dr. Doolittle, and she was Mrs. Watson in the Nicholas Meyer Penn movie, 7% Solution. She played Anna in Anna and the King, which was the 1972 TV miniseries that was adapted from The King and I, which starred Huel Brenner and was based on the novel Anna and the King of Siam. And she's the voice of Hera in Disney's Hercules movie and series. Um, incidentally, by the way, Patrick Stewart is only a year younger than Samantha Egar and two years younger than Jeremy Kemp. Now, rounding out the Picard family is David Birkin as Rene. Now, I, I was so fascinated by this. He's actually the nephew of Jane Birkin, actress and longtime partner of the great Serge Gainsbourg. Um, He has appeared in a handful of films, including Sylvia and the 1998 adaptation of Les Miserables starring Liam Neeson. Now, uh, David will be back again playing a Picard. I won't spoil it here, but we'll get there soon enough. And as Worf's parents, Sergei and Helena Rojenko, Theodore Bickel and Georgia Brown, they're very often referred to together. Uh, Theodore was a well-respected actor and singer who has appeared in all kinds of productions on screen and in the theater. He was in The African Queen, The Defiant Ones, My Fair Lady. He actually originated the role of Captain Von Trapp in the stage version of The Sound of Music. Georgia Brown was a veteran stage cabaret and film actress as well who appeared in The Saint. She played Mrs. Freud in The 7% Solution. And she was nominated for Tony Awards for The Three Penny Opera and Oliver. 
Now, she died at the age of 56 during an emergency surgical procedure in London. Theodore passed away in 2015 at the age of 91. And rounding out the cast, uh, Dennis Cregan as Jean-Luc Picard's friend Louis, frequent TV guest star and appeared in the movie Superman 4 and the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan. And as Jack Crusher, Doug Wirt got his start in soap operas and he has appeared on Law & Order, Law & Order SVU, Stargate SG-1, and we will see him back as Jack Crusher two more times. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what Downton Abbey would be like if it were set in the 24th century? Please stand by. Prologue. Riker and Worf talk about Worf's family coming to see Worf. Then Counselor Troy and Captain Picard talk about Picard going to see his family. Act 1. Worf talks to O'Brien about Worf's parents. O'Brien talks to Worf about O'Brien's parents. Worf's parents talk to Worf, then talk to O'Brien about Worf. On Earth, Jean-Luc talks to his nephew and sister-in-law about his brother, Robert. Jean-Luc talks to Robert. Act 2. Troy and Dr. Crusher talk about Wes and Wes's father, Jack. Worf's parents talk to Jordy about Worf, then Worf's dad talks to Jordy about Worf privately. Robert, his wife, his son, and Jean-Luc talk about Jean-Luc's friend, Louis. Wait, Louis I, ha- hey, hey, well, Ken, Ken. Yeah? Is this, is this how you're doing the whole recap? Well, there's a fight in Act 4. Um, otherwise, it really is just like a lot of talking, dude. Well, it shouldn't... Okay, uh, you could do this where you actually uh, say what that talking covers, though. Hmm. So, like, yeah, Mission Log, Ken and John talk about what all the talking's all about? Maybe. All right, let me see if I can... Uh, see if I can remember. Okay, do your best. Prologue. Still smarting from its run-in with the Borg, the Enterprise is in space talk at McKinley Station. It is here that Worf finds out that his adoptive mother and father will be coming aboard. Worf seems none too pleased. It's not right for a family to visit the Klingon while he's on duty. Though Riker reminds Worf that this isn't a Klingon ship. What? Is that thing where the Klingons have cast you out? Worf says no. He's told his parents about that, but seriously, no human will ever fully understand that anyway. While family prepares to come to see Worf, Captain Picard prepares to go see family. He's going to his home village for the first time in 20 years. Counselor Troy is doing that counselor thing. Interesting. What do you think it means? She's glad he's going off ship. She just thinks he should think about why he's going where he's going. Also, you're better since the Borg, but you're not fine. Have a good trip. Act 1. Worf's parents are late, a defining characteristic of his mother, according to Worf. O'Brien commiserates with Worf over his parental angst. Sergei and Helena Roshenko are just as jovial as can be once they arrive. Sergei, an old enlisted man from the Intrepid, is very excited to be on board. He has all of the specs and diagrams at home, and he'll talk to anybody about that. A lot. Helena, on the other hand, is more aware of how much is too much to say and what might embarrass her son. On the planet, Picard is set upon by a highwayman. Except it's not a highwayman. It's Jean-Luc's nephew, René. Jean-Luc's brother, Robert, still has this hard, unforgiving attitude toward Jean-Luc that he's apparently had forever. A fact we learn through René telling Jean-Luc that he doesn't seem like an arrogant son of a... Picard also meets his sister-in-law, Marie, for the first time. She welcomes him home, and she means it. 
This is his home. It always will be. For Picard, it is as if nothing here has changed. Robert is out tending the vines. The meeting between the brothers is not warm. Far from it. Jean-Luc says it's good to see Robert, who tells Jean-Luc, Dinner's at eight. You know where everything is. I have work to do. Act two. Counselor Troy and Dr. Crusher are having a drink in Crusher's quarters. At a guess, I'd say Crusher's having a Cape Codder and Troy's enjoying a nice glass of Tranya. A knock on the door and a suitcase has been delivered to the good doctor. It's got Jack Crusher's name on it. Odds and ends that Beverly put in storage a long time ago when Jack, her husband and Wesley's father, died. Among the items, a recording Jack made for Wesley, right after Wes was born. He'd meant to make them for Wes as the boy grew up, though... He only got around to making the one, and then, of course, so there's just one recording. Troy says Wes has a lot of questions about his father and that the recording might help answer some of those, though Beverly wonders if it'll do more harm than good. Meanwhile, the Roshenkos are getting a tour of engineering and entertaining Geordi with stories about Worf when he was a boy. Worf and his mom go for a walk on the Arboretum, while Geordi gives Sergei a look at some of the ship's newest technology. Sergei's interest in that may be a ruse, though. Once Worf is out of earshot, a concerned-sounding Sergei says he wants to talk to Jordi about his son. On Earth, Marie tells Jean-Luc that his friend Louis wants to see him when he can. Louis is working on raising another subcontinent on Earth, an endeavor Robert finds foolish. Marie also says that the mayor wants to host a parade in Jean-Luc's honor, give him the key to the city. He's a hero! Jean-Luc says no, though Robert needles him, saying he just needs a little arm-twisting. Anyway, technology stinks in Robert's estimation. Synthahol stinks. Replicators stink. Robert, you see, is all about maintaining old values, as was their father. Jean-Luc says adding convenience does not have to mean losing values, though Robert argues that in his view, life is already too convenient. Marie shuts the argument down, but that's like a game of whack-a-mole. Knock one down, another pops up. In no time, Robert is chiding Jean-Luc for false modesty, pretending not to remember whether he got a ribbon for a paper he wrote on starships when he was ten. He always got ribbons. And besides, quit encouraging my son to go off and be a starship captain. Jean-Luc says he wasn't, though maybe if Robert weren't so narrow-minded, let René see the world as it actually is. Robert says, tell you what, you raise your sons however you like, and let me raise mine. Ouch. Act 3. Turns out what Louis is working on really is interesting. Jean-Luc has been keeping up with it in the journals. He quizzes Louis on how they plan to tech the tech on it, and he tells them about a time they tech the tech on the Enterprise to achieve a similar outcome. Louis is impressed, and asks Jean-Luc if he would like to see more. Too bad you'd never leave Starfleet, Jean-Luc. They're looking for a guy like you to run this whole project. No, I'd, I'd never leave Starfleet. In 10 Ford, Sergei and Helena are telling Worf how awesome he is. The whole crew thinks so. Worf says he wishes they would be more reserved sometimes. Then Worf is called away. Sergei and Helena are torn. He wonders whether they should just leave it alone. The Helena says she can't. It's not long before Guinan is talking to them. You know, it's kind of that thing that Guinan does. She learns a bit about Worf. He never wanted any human anything growing up. That's how he never had prune juice on Earth. They cooked him all Klingon foods, let him learn what he could, what he wanted to know about the society and custom of his race. Guinan thinks that that's great, though she tells them that when he looks out at the stars towards home, he's not looking towards the Klingon homeworld, he's looking towards Earth, 
He's looking towards the Roshenkos. Back in France, Jean-Luc is having a heart-to-heart with Marie. He tells her that he's actually thinking about going to work on the Atlantis Project, the project on which Louis is working. Marie says, why not? Though Picard says, bah. Oh, by the way, thanks for your correspondence, Marie. Made me feel like I was part of the family. She chides him. You are part of the family. I ring at the door and it's Louis. Good news, Jean-Luc, they want to interview you for the director's position. The board of directors jumped at the prospect of Jean-Luc taking the leadership role. Jean-Luc is miffed. He never said there was a prospect. But he'll hear what they have to say. Act 4. Wes and Beverly are talking over the message Jack left for Wes. Jack wanted Wes to have it when he turned 18, and Beverly wants him to have it too. The Roshenkos stopped by Worf's quarters. Worf says he wasn't sure he wanted them to come to the Enterprise, but... He's glad they're here. They say they had to come, after what happened to him with the Klingons. Their boy was in trouble. They don't get it, but whatever it is, they know that what he did was right. They know what kind of man he is. He says he has to bear his dishonor alone, but they say that's not true. Perhaps it's too human of them to say, but they are with him. They are proud of him. They love him. That ends with about the closest thing to a warm hug that anyone is ever going to get out of Worf. In France, Robert spots Jean-Luc, which means he spots a chance to give Jean-Luc grief. He warns him that the wine he's drinking is not synthahol. It'll lead to a loss of control. Something Robert would like to see. Hey, by the way, tell me what happened with the Borg. Not that I care. I'm just curious. Jean-Luc is reluctant to say. So Robert guesses. I gather you were hurt, humiliated... I always thought you needed that. Humiliation. Or was it humility? Jean-Luc storms out. The Robert follows, goading him. So you're tired of fighting, eh? Tired of the Enterprise, too? Still, it makes sense. Local boy makes good, comes home a big hero. Twenty years later. Picard says he never sought accolades. The Robert disagrees. Fine, says Picard. You were just jealous. Well, duh. Always watching you win. Always watching you break father's rules and get away with it. Jean-Luc says Robert could have broken the rules himself, though he says he could not. It was his job to look after Jean-Luc, something Jean-Luc says was more akin to bullying. Robert concedes that it was bullying sometimes, and it was awesome. Seriously, though, why did you come back, Jean-Luc? Did you come back because you wanted me to look after you again? Well, that led to a fight. Punching and shoving and literal mudslinging. That ends with the two men laughing. Then Jean-Luc crying over the loss of control imposed on him by the Borg, over the terrible things that they made him do, the people that they made him kill, and his powerlessness to stop it. Robert says there's something that Jean-Luc has to do. Live with it. This is going to be with him a long time, and he has to learn to live with it. The question is, will he live with it below the sea with Louis, or above the clouds with the Enterprise? Picard says maybe Robert was right. Maybe he did come back so Robert could help him. Robert seems fine with that, though he says he still doesn't like his younger brother. Act 5. Robert and Jean-Luc are drunk. Marie sees that they've been fighting, which they very unconvincingly deny. Jean-Luc tells Marie that he's decided not to take the job with Louis. It's time he get back to the Enterprise. That's where he belongs. Though, should he forget that again... He knows where he can go to be reminded. On the Enterprise, Wes is ready to hear the words of his long-dead dad. Jack tells Wes that he has no idea how to be a father. 
He apologizes to the ten-week-old Wesley for all the mistakes he's bound to make as Wes grows up. He also hopes Wes won't hold it against him, his being away so much. That's just part of being Starfleet. Jack talks about the inexplicable bond that exists between them, tells his son that he loves him, and the recording ends. On Earth, pleasant goodbyes are said between Jean-Luc, Marie, and René. René says one day he'll be leaving for his own starship, though Jean-Luc says he may decide to do something different one day. Robert gives Jean-Luc a particularly fine bottle of wine from the family vineyards with two requests. Don't drink it all at once, and if possible, try not to drink it alone. The two men hug, and Jean-Luc heads away. Later that night, Marie and Robert are finishing a nice dinner. René is outside, staring at the stars, dreaming. Marie says it's probably dreams about starships and adventures. She worries that it's getting late. Though Robert says, let him dream. The end. Oui, bon, très bon. Ah, merci beaucoup, monsieur. Ah, de rien. Uh, and look how much action you fit into that story. Oh, there was so little action in this story. <laughs> it's okay. I, it's I guess right. I could have said, uh, he goes out to the field where, uh, where Robert is crushing grapes with his hand. That was interesting. I, I don't know. I, I, I like wine. I yeah. don't know enough about the process. Yeah. But I don't know if, if you uh, own a vineyard, do you go out there and just kind of smash them in your hands and sort of throw them toward your mouth in order, to, in order to try them? Maybe. That actually makes sense to me that you would do that. I mean, you would you would probably come to know that, you know, the taste of the grapes and the flavor of the grapes all the way along. I mean, it could be worse, right? It could have been like uh, like that episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> right. They went yes. out there and there's there's Robert, you know, pants hiked up, stomping on the grapes himself. You right. know, be- that better than he be. In an earlier draft of the script. So. <laughs> May well have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why is Troy just in Picard's room? Why isn't she? Well, I, just, <laughs> she's just, just in there. I, well, I don't know. I don't think she was just there when he got there. I mean, you know, we came in halfway through that conversation. Well, I like to think that, but he seemed a little surprised. Did he? A little take it. Well, it would just. Uh, well, no, he's distracted like, the whole time, though. That's the thing, right? We're is. actually seeing. We're seeing. It's fascinating to me that you're telling me that they were interested in having this sort of be a third part or a part three, even though it's not technically a part three. Yeah. yeah. Because the last shot of Picard we saw was him getting so distracted by what had happened, he's not even drinking tea the way he normally does. Mm-hmm. The second he's alone, he's off, and right. and now this is this has progressed to the point where even when he's in a room with someone else, uh, he's alone. Either that I, or, or really he just can't figure out how to get rid of her. Like, I can't right. lie to her because she's a psychic. <laughs> she's a telepath right, right. and she'll know that I'm like, well, I, I was I like going to do something now. untoward and I was really hoping you wouldn't be here. No, you <laughs> weren't. You just want to get rid of me, you jerk. <laughs> Captain Jerk, I, my apologies. I, I do like their dynamic. And, and I think we'll come back to this because uh, there's some interesting subtext to that scene. But, um, you know, here's another crewman who's totally consumed by his work. And I like seeing them a little more relaxed around each other. At least yeah. by the end of that scene, there's a nice progression there. Talk to me um, about the kiss on the cheek. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I, See, it didn't feel, it didn't feel, and yet it didn't feel. It, well, I think that's so good about it, is that it, it feels a little out of place, but man, did it need to happen. What would that scene have been if, if it didn't end with that? Well, it would have been something else. It would have been. <laughs> it's hard for us to know right now, but yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Um, Chief O'Brien. Well, yeah. you know women. Yeah. Really? Thank you for bringing it up, though, because I'm glad I didn't have to. Sure. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say about it. 
Okay. That's it. That's it. Good. You know women. Okay. <laughs> we'll just we'll just leave that where it is. Just okay. I think people yeah. get it. Really, I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think they do. <laughs> um, friends, I, I've I've mentioned before on the show mm-hmm. how I, I'm a francophile. I think I, I think the French uh, the best cuisine in the world mm-hmm. and just incredible art and uh, man, just beautiful country. Um, and I love that in the future everyone in France is English. Yeah. I actually wondered if this was a debate that they had or if it was just a problem that they had or what, because they were seriously, um, it's during the fight. I actually wondered too, if I could now tell like what order the shooting went in, because during the Mm. fight, Jean-Luc calls his brother Robert, Mm. but most of the rest of the show, he's calling him Robert. Yeah. Uh, at one point, Marie calls, uh, Louis Louis. And I think Jean-Luc might have called him that as well. Yeah, I thought so. But yeah. then they call him Louis. And sort of like halfway through shooting, they decided, you know, it is France. <laughs> <laughs> I know nobody talks like it, but it is France. Maybe we should actually, you yeah. know, go, go, go like that. Exactly. I thought it was an interesting choice to have René so young mm-hmm. with much older parents. And, and I don't know if there's really a point to it. I don't know if there's really a thing, but it, it makes a unique family portrait, just sort of something slightly non-traditional for this family. Well, I, um, I wonder if that has to do with, though, people living longer and people sort of having... Although you would think that Robert, honestly, you would think that Robert would have like a 20-something or a 30-something year old kid at this point, because he's been so mm-hmm. traditional all the way through. You'd think he would have like immediately or almost immediately. Right, right, right. And maybe there is. Maybe there's another one that we don't know about. Well, <laughs> you know? really? Because I think he's the number one son. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. come back in a yeah. few years. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, but I, I, I was thinking about that. You know, someone mentioned, uh, one of our listeners mentioned a while back that Patrick Stewart, I think when they started filming, was 46, 47, something like that. Okay. But but likely Picard, and I think they've mentioned it or maybe we've seen it in like a readout somewhere, is older than Patrick Stewart was. Um, but this is the future, so people who are older probably look younger than people of that same age now. So right. I, I'm okay with that. Now, interesting that Robert actually looks much older than Jean-Luc. Hmm. And that could just be, well, two actors who, who look different. Look similar enough, you kind of believe it that they're brothers. Yeah. But I, I always thought for a moment, it was interesting to me, and that's why I put it in trivia, that there's only about a two-year difference between um, between the two actors. But to me, it looked like about a five to ten-year age gap right. between the characters. We never actually hear what the age gap is on the show, do we? No, we just know that Robert is older. You got to figure that Robert's not that much older, though, because, I mean, if he were, like, eight years older, let's say, mm-hmm. like, what's the psychological thing? Psychologically speaking, uh, siblings that are born 10 years apart are only children, as far as the mm-hmm. way they're raised, as far as the way they grow up. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't think, I, I heard that a million years ago, and I, the only reason I remember it is because I have a brother who's 10 years younger than I am. And that always sort of resonated with me. It's like, okay, well, I have a brother, but he's so much younger than me that apparently psychologists decided a long time ago that no, I don't. So, um, yeah. at least psychologically. So, um, my assumption, though, is that you're, you're not talking about that much of a difference between them because if Robert were like eight, nine, ten years older than Picard, then whatever Picard does wouldn't really matter because that would be ten years ago as far as he's concerned. My assumption right. is, I mean, it's almost like, you know, Robert is like a, like a, like a senior in high school and, and Picard's like the, the freshman or the sophomore. 
So he's like yeah. watching all this stuff happen, and it's all still pretty, you know, current for him as it's happening. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's they, they had to have been close enough, or else you think so? Yeah. Would, yeah, yeah. Rubert would just simply not care about um, Jean Luc's performance in school. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the thing is, though, Robert at the same time is like a you know a man of the earth kind of out in the fields every day doing the hard labor, doing the manual labor. I mean, so that'll age you a bit more too than mm-hmm. yeah, sure. sitting yeah. pretty you know in front of the horseshoe. <laughs> right, right. We have that scene with Deanna and Beverly. Uh, Beverly mentions that Wesley has finally come to terms with his father's death. And I, I point that out because it was Ron Moore's original script for The Bonding, to which Gene objected because he thought that in the future people would just kind of get over death uh, it, you know, that it, it, it's a sort of, well, it, it, we accept it as a fact of life. So it's unrealistic to have this little kid mourning the way that he is mourning. Hmm. And we haven't really had a lot. We've had a few choice scenes that we've pointed out uh, with Wesley really dealing with uh, the idea of his, his father's death. Um, Weren't they in but, the bonding? Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much limited to that. I think they actually were, yeah. Now, there, yeah. were, there was actually something, and it's interesting. Um, I thought about that episode when, so 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 Jack Crusher's plan was to make these recordings for Wes, right, mm-hmm. all the way through. In the bonding, we have Wes saying that he remembers Picard coming to, you know, tell him the news of Jack's death, the same way that uh, Picard is now going to have to go and tell a young Jeremy Astor uh, the, the news of Marla's death. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jack Crusher, from the time that Wesley was 10 weeks to the time he was about eight, which is about how old Jeremy was, right? Mm-hmm. I just never had a chance to make another recording. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because that That's... that was a little bit of a I couldn't tell if that was a continuity error or if we're just going to let it go because you know, um, Beverly says, "Well, he's going to make these recordings," and of course he was never able to. I'm thinking really because well, he had like seven and a half more years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was very busy. He was very busy. I understand yeah. that, but you could find time. It's like it's like that thing, you know, that we're all going to. I'm going to. I'm going to write a chapter a week. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to write a well, chapter I, and then you're going to put it down. And seven and a half years later, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's okay. Um, so I, I think we'll come back to this as a theme, and but it, it was nice to see the old ways. You know, I put that in in finger quotes being preserved, um, and, and I like that we're back on Earth since we are kind of limited on Star Trek to just what Starfleet is doing at any given time. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think that technology versus humanity is a real theme of this episode, but it, it's a nice place to draw a line between Robert and Jean-Luc. Um, we may hit on that again, but I sort of wanted to get it out of the way here because I don't think it's one of the major hit-you-over-the-head themes that we'll we'll talk about later in the show. I'll tell you, the only way that it might end up being a major theme is mm-hmm. if we go ahead and fold back in the last two episodes. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. which yeah, honestly, yeah, yeah, I yeah. was not even thinking about that in terms of this episode, but it's only through this conversation that you and I have had so far today. Yeah. That I'm like, oh, well, that's, that is an interesting line to draw there, especially because, I mean, Picard has now been forcibly thrust into like the the forefront of technology <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> very much against mm-hmm. his will and doing horrible things along with it yeah well i mean we uh, i at least had kind of a, a bit of a conversation online with somebody about this uh, who felt like we had left that out of best of both worlds and i was thinking well 
Best of Both Worlds has its own themes, but that's not necessarily the statement piece of Best of Both Worlds. But it's interesting that it comes back in that way. Of all the things you could have chosen to drive a wedge between Robert and Jean-Luc, you really could have picked anything. Because the, the point is not what they're arguing over. The point is that they argue. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, but yeah, it, it certainly seeing what uh, uh, Jean-Luc has been through, then why not put that much more fine of a point on it by, by having it be related to technology. Um, let's move on to Sergei. Sergei was uh, a warp field specialist on the old, the old, old, so, so old Excelsior class, which also happens to be pretty much every other ship in the <laughs> fleet that we encounter on uh, the next generation. No doubt. Um, prune juice makes a return. Uh, not the actual juice, but the discussion of prune juice. It's a charming moment, and and it was charming that we got to see how Worf's mind works first time around with Guinan, and, and it's charming again that his parents now see a little chink in his armor through her. I, I really like that a lot. Um, had to point out, holy crap, a new continent between North America and Europe slash Africa. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is wow. that where it's going to be? I didn't even I didn't even know. Yeah, I, I did a freeze stream on it. It's this big chunk, uh, just a big chunk of land, Atlantis, the mm-hmm. Atlantis project, and it's this huge chunk that sort of stretches through about the middle of North America into South America, and then of course on the other side of the Atlantic, Europe and and Africa. It's a big, big, massive land, and I thought this was really going to mess up the cruise trade <laughs> <laughs> for a while there. Try, personally, trying to figure out why we're doing it, and and I, you know, I guess because we can, or to see if we. Can might be an okay answer, but we've got so many planets that we're colonizing. Yeah, and you know, that displaces a lot of water. You know, you'd think. Yeah, and <laughs> and now you would think that a lot of that water in the future would be frozen in the, uh, oh, what were those things we used to have? Um, <laughs> Pull oh, ice caps? caps. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Walk-in yeah. freezers? There were two right. choices there. Yeah, that would displace, displace a lot of water. I don't really get it. It's sort of like, yeah. you know, do you want all of the excitement of being a colonist without actually, you know, going right. anywhere or doing anything? Right. And also, Sick. we hate Miami. We just hate <laughs> Miami. So we're going to flood it. <laughs> That's a funny idea. Uh, another, holy crap, Worf's chair. Yeah. Wow. That's a thing designed by uh, Norwegian designer Peter Opsvik. Uh It was a rental in the show, but if you want to pick one up today, it'll set you back about uh, 12 grand. Because Michael Dorn sat in it? No, no. Or, or despite the fact Michael Dorn sat in it. Really? Despite the fact that All right. Michael Dorn sat in it. Not it, but but one of them. Right, right, right. Yeah, there were more than one, if you can believe that. So if you wanted I, I knew, a set, it'd be like 48,000. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, might, it might be. And then the table uh, that you would need. Yo. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy yeah. then. Just don't <laughs> try to eat from that table. <laughs> um, there was a terrific long cam shot following Robert and Jean-Luc leading into their fight. Such a cool choice to make that an un- uninterrupted bit of dialogue as they walk to the vineyard. I thought that was great. And it's a little uh, uh, tip of the hat there to um, Marvin V. Rush, whose camera work I absolutely love. In honor of Louis, I am working on a song about New Atlantis. Featured will be the Twelve. The Vintner, the Terraformer, the Doctor, the Dead Guy, the Klingon, the Starship Captain, and the other so-called gods of our legends. 
Hail Atlantis. I mentioned before that I feel like this is an episode where there are themes and there are ideas here that don't necessarily lend themselves to be a big overall statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the themes are so interesting and they're so rich. Um, who, who was it that said is always something with parents, isn't it? It, it was it was O'Brien. It, it was our old friend who, who gets a full name, Miles Edward Women O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it was just it was a stroke of genius to introduce who worse parents are. Because we know that he was not raised by Klingon. So who out of all the choices in the universe could raise him but these funny, outgoing, almost, almost a little bit of stereotype going on in there? You kind of, I don't know, push or pull that one way or the other. Um, but it takes the it takes the edge off the idea of this sort of monolithic monoculture, non-diverse sense of who we think the Klingons are. And it really helps to solidify our understanding of Worf. It's so great. And his embarrassment at his family, his constant struggle for identity. We've described him as trying to be more Klingon than Klingon. And then realizing there is a connection to the people who are his adopted family was really lovely to see. Mm -hmm. He sees himself one way. They see him as another way. And throughout this whole thing and this whole time that we've known him over over three seasons now into four, he's carving out just these little pieces of who he is. Uh, here's this adult who just really doesn't quite know who he is. Um, I thought about this idea that you and I both grew up in the South. Yes. You in Tennessee, me in Alabama. Neither of us has an accent. <laughs> yeah. Well, a Southern accent anyway. Right. And And we both moved far away. Yes. From the South. Let's see. I, I moved to New York first and Chicago, then L.A. You moved to San Francisco. Oh, and no, now I, I moved to Boston and oh, then Boston. San Francisco and then um, short stint in Oklahoma and then San Francisco and now Buffalo. Now, when you go back home and, yeah. and I, I'll call Tennessee home and just I call Alabama home. Mm-hmm. Do you feel at home? Uh, for me, it's about people and it's about what people are around. One of my oldest friends is still in Nashville. Actually, two of my oldest friends are still in Nashville now that I think about it. And then, of course, my family's there. Um, a lot of it, not all of it. Uh, the weird thing is Nashville honestly has changed so much. Nashville has had a real boom over the past few years. Like I tell mm-hmm. stories now about we used to go downtown in the middle of the night because there was no one there. Uh, a friend of mine who is now a, a singer, an established singer, had four or five albums. He's 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 like a singer singer. He's well respected, but he's not you know he's not famous famous. I remember one night him uh, climbing the fire escape of a building downtown Nashville, and you could do it because there were no cops, there was nobody. And now try going to downtown Nashville. So I mean, the question that you ask is an interesting one because my home has changed or my hometown has changed so incredibly much. Um, we we got a football team that we didn't have when I left, and we have a hockey team that we didn't have when I left. And yet, that's my hockey team because that's my hometown. Do you find that your and here's the word assimilation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you find that your assimilation of of your cultural background mm-hmm. ha- has changed in any way uh, over the years to to who you are? And, and I'll just I'll give you an example. Like um, I I moved to New York when I was 18. When okay. I was finished with high school, I was like, cool, I'm moving to New York. Seriously? Um, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. 
Wow, dude. I I specifically chose a school in New York because I loved New York City. Um, We had visited there a lot when I was a kid, so I really felt comfortable there. And and I really – I never moved back home. I visited back home many times, but I never moved back home. Um, But – you go a few years out, and and I think to this day I'm still incredibly proud of my pieces of anyway my my southern background, my southern heritage. I love to talk about barbecue. <laughs> I love to talk about you know the, the, these things that are just little like cultural touch points of what it is to grow up in the south. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and, and this is all a very long way of saying like I I, I kind of get wharf. You know, I, I didn't have this kind of weird embarrassment. That uh, that he does, but there's a thing about coming back to terms, coming back to grips with with who you are, mm-hmm. you know, and and what turned you into the person that you are. And, and I, I thought what was lovely there on an emotional level is that there, there's this lesson about understanding and compassion, transcending protocol, or in his case, transcending species. Mm-hmm. So totally different. His parents love him. And, yeah. and they don't care what the rules of of discommendation say, or or they don't even care that Worf may think he's alone. That isolation is totally self imposed. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I jumped ahead and I, I I threw out that story and I kind of posed it to you as a question, just because it was a, a thought that I had about his carving out a cultural identity for himself, and and that that's how I related to it. Hmm. Interesting. I, I mean, I, I yes. <laughs> this, well i mean this show is not about me and you and our, our southern heritages so i mean I, oh, like, no, well, part of me is tempted to go ahead and like expl- well uh, part of me is tempted <laughs> to go ahead and explore that a bit more and then i realize that's not really what this show is about so yeah interesting so you know see me at a convention sometime and we'll talk all about it yeah you'll talk about your you know georgia mint juleps <laughs> <laughs> so uh but let's let's talk about picard because mm-hmm. it's the and specifically Jean-Luc Picard. We had to kind of make a distinction in this episode between Robert. Can I tell you how many times going through the recap I had to stop and and go back and Mm -hmm. rewrite it because I had written Picard and I was like, okay, which one of the four? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Right. So Jean-Luc Picard has been abused. Mm -hmm. He has been violated at the hands of the Borg. God, I love him looking in Deanna's face and Raising his hands and saying, <laughs> I'm better. Raising his hands. And it's really... That, because, again, there's the actor playing every nuance of the scene. Every yeah. bit of it. Well, it's also fascinating, too, that, I mean, he does that before Deanna. And it's, it's like, I mean, he's going through the motions of it. And it doesn't look weak when he does it. But it doesn't look like, you know, victorious or proud or anything like that. And yet that's one of the images that Robert throws at him later. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, always winning the weapons, always doing this. Arms raised in victory. <laughs> and he's had that, like, you know, sort of week, like, yay, look at me, you know, uh, just earlier in the show. Um, yeah. I don't know if that was an intentional bit of nuance or just an accidental one, but uh, it's a great one. I'm surprised that Deanna would uh, – we, we mentioned the scene earlier. Mm-hmm. But it, she's questioning his decision to go back home. She, she's, like, backing him into this corner. And it it just sort of – I don't know. I, I thought the scene started out from this position, like, this is a natural – this is what he has to do. Mm-hmm. And why is she, why is she sort of toying with him? Well, you know, like she's questioning the idea. I don't think she's questioning the idea. I think she's making him question the idea. 
she's basically telling him, look, you know, good, go home. That's great. I think it's fantastic you're getting off the ship. I think it's fantastic you're going someplace. Do me a favor and know why you're doing it. I mean, that's that's all she's saying. And that's not, you know, what's the what's the almost hackneyed, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. Right. And she's. Right. I mean, you know, yes, it is natural for him to go home. I don't think she would argue that it wasn't, but I think she would want him to know why he was doing it exactly. Which, I mean, becomes a large part of what happens with him, right, while he's there. He goes home and, and he feels like, oh, nothing here has changed. I half expect to see myself come running out of there as a little boy. He then talks to one of his childhood friends. And one of his childhood friends has this wonderful thing that he could do where he could go down to the bottom of the ocean and he could work on this thing. And it would be fantastic. It would be absolutely interesting. It would be absolutely fantastic. And it would be easy. And that's what Robert is arguing with him about, too. He's like, oh, so you come back here and everything's cake, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, it would have been an easy thing for him to do. And he you know genuinely considered it. And I think I think what Deanna was saying to him is is not don't go home or oh this is ludicrous. I think she was just saying just you know be sure you know why you're doing what you're doing as you go. Mm. And that See, that, that doesn't of, seem like bad advice to me. I, I thought that would be the conversation to have afterward. Like he he's made the decision to go. Mm-hmm. She probably already knows why he's going, and he in a small part has to know why he's going. Great, have the conversation afterward. What did he, you learn? He what, may what? He, he may have no clue why he's going though. Yeah, well, fair enough. I don't know. I mean, it didn't it, yeah. it didn't strike me as odd that I mean, she is a counselor for crying out loud. I mean, if Riker had been like, "Why are you going home?" <laughs> <That'd be> like, <laughs> right. Speaking of which, by the way, I'm sorry. How is it that Riker does not understand Worf not being sure that he wanted his parents around? <laughs> Riker, whose dad you know came on board the Enterprise. And they seriously came to blows. I understand it was in a controlled environment and they had helmets and they had the whole big suits and things like that. But they seriously ended up hitting each other. Right. How is it that Riker doesn't get that, that Worf might not be, you know, overly comfortable with his parents being there? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I would understand Worf. <laughs> really? <laughs> because I suffered amnesia sometime between the last episode and this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think that if anybody would get it, he would get it. You'd think so. All right, Robert. Robert is a jerk mm-hmm. to, to Jean-Luc. And, <laughs> and it's, it's one thing to be in disagreement, to not see eye to eye, and, and to even resent someone else's success. Jean-Luc has been through hell. Yeah. And he, he also just saved the planet. So he's been through hell, but he's done an amazing job. Well, I mean, Riker was a, a big hand in that. But, yes. Uh, yes, you know. he also jeopardized the planet. Yeah, but I mean, Jean-Luc is the one who said it. sleep. That's true. That's true. It's the one who broke through personal fortitude. Yep. Say sleep. Um, It's shocking to see Robert not even offer a hand at reconciliation. You know, it's Jean-Luc who walks up in that first scene and says, it's good to see you. Yeah. And Robert has not even turned around. Right. He's also the worst kind of bully. He's the kind who is obnoxious and hateful and then jumps on his victim for not getting the joke or or not getting the point of the bullying, Mm -hmm. which is really uh, just difficult to watch. You know, Um, I don't know that that scene of those two fighting in the vineyard is realistic. There's a kind of over dramatization there that that doesn't always work uh but the character work behind it is so great is so strong we needed to see jean-luc picard break down like that and, mm-hmm. and it, it resonates at the end when we see him smile about Worf's parents that's that's such a great moment to end that episode because i don't think a previous incarnation of captain picard would have necessarily smiled 
Hmm. He would have been like, hey, get back to work. I'm going to my ready room. See you later. <laughs> you know? um, but Robert, Robert was the good son, in, in his words, while Picard broke the rules. But it seems like not being a bully would be a pretty good rule to follow if you're being <laughs> the good son who follows the rules. So is his greatest flaw his jealousy? And and if it is, then how in the world could Marie put up with him? That that just it, it seems like this horrible personality trait would come out in other ways. But by all accounts, he seems to pretty have a pretty functional family life. Mm-hmm. You know, Marie's great. Renee's pretty well adjusted kid. So <laughs> you know, um, so that whole dynamic, that whole relationship. I think is something that is it rests so nicely on the actors who are performing it because what what we're really into as the viewer is the tension mm-hmm. and and the drama of it. I guess if we analyze it too hard, uh, which well is what we do on Mission Log, things <laughs> under <laughs> an incredible amount of scrutiny. Yeah, um, there's something where you just go, wow, th- this guy cannot exist, but 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 maybe he can, you know, maybe he can, and maybe maybe this is a way that that there there are some families that they actually relate to each other this way. I don't know. It it, it made me want to see more of their time together. You know, the 45 minutes seems like very short, especially when you have other storylines you have to follow. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something weird about, and and this again, I mean, tying it into a trilogy rather than this being what follows the amazing, you know, uh, two-parter. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's zero room for change here in more ways than one. And it seems to mostly be born of Robert. Um, there's Robert's love of the old ways, but there's also no way that Jean-Luc is coming home because Jean-Luc is captain of a starship. That's right. who that's who Jean-Luc Picard is. Um, as far as Jean-Luc is concerned, except Jean-Luc is willing to consider whether or not he is actually captain of a starship. And whether he's considering that because he's just afraid or because he's scared. I mean, Robert is a jerk. Robert is a bully. But you almost get the sense that that Picard is who Picard is because Robert expects Picard to be who Picard is. Jean-Luc, excuse me. I know I'm saying Picard and they're both mm-hmm. Picards. I mean, again, there's no way that Jean-Luc is coming home because that is not what's good for Jean-Luc. And it's Robert who knows that and it's Robert who's going to make him see that. And and it's kind of a weird thing. And it's, it's especially a weird sort of duality with the whole thing that happened with Riker last week. Riker is always going to be the captain of a starship. He knows this. He knows he's always going to be captain of a starship. And suddenly he's finding out, well, no, I'm not. And and but I'm okay with that because I'm okay with where I am. And so now Picard comes to this place where he's like, mm, "Is that really what I want to be? Is that really what I need to be?" Mm. And maybe he's just having a knee jerk reaction. And maybe this goes back to what Troy had said about, you know, okay, cool, you're going home, just you know, try to figure out why. And you know, I guess your two options at that point are because I want to find myself, because I want to recharge my batteries. There's actually three options: because I want to find myself, because I want to recharge my batteries, or because I want to stay home. He's got right. to think about why he's doing it as he's going. Otherwise, yeah, he could have just as easily slid back into, you know, whatever that was. And who knows? Maybe then he then lives the next 20 or 30 years at, you know, Maison du Picard um, being bullied by Robert. I don't know. Or, you know, coming home from the Atlantis Project on the weekends to be bullied by Robert. 
and and what I can't decide is okay. So th- it seems to me there's room for lots of tragedy here. Mm-hmm. But as wonderful as all these character moments are, are they cardboard? You're asking if Robert can exist in real life. Is Robert just like a stand-in for a bad guy? I don't, or, or a good guy, or whichever. I mean, he's obviously got love for Picard because of what he does with the wine at the end. Don't yeah. drink it all at once, and if possible, don't drink it alone. He cares about his brother. He doesn't like him. But he, but he does care about him, or does he just care about what he thinks his brother should be or what he always thought his brother was going to be? It's it's always something with family, huh, John? <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting that you said that about Robert making Picard, making Jean-Luc who he is. Mm-hmm. Um I, I I agree with that, definitely. I, I thought about the movie Whiplash. Which, oh, I haven't yeah. seen it. No, I haven't seen it. I know what you're talking about. But. Maybe you know the premise. J.K. Simmons is yeah. this band teacher who just utterly abuses his students to make them great. Right. And and the the flip side of that is that, you know, you also suck the joy out of performing. Right. You know, and, and then you're left with this question as well. If there isn't somebody there to push someone else to be great, can they ever find that greatness on their own? I don't think that takes away from the abusive nature. It, you know, uh, Robert is a jerk and he is a bully. Is that also partly responsible for Jean-Luc Picard being who he is? Well, of course it is, but we don't know the alternative. We don't know that Jean-Luc, growing up under different circumstances, would have equally become great, would have equally become the person that he is. So um, it, it's really tough to say, but you know, you can't ask somebody, well, how is your life different from somebody else's life? Well, I haven't lived out of the life, <laughs> so I don't really know. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's uh, that, that's the tough thing about it. But I, I think under any objective look at it, um, Robert is uh, he's a bit out of hand. I think Marie should have a good talk with him after Jean Luc is gone. <laughs> I'm no. getting my replicator. <laughs> right, get her a replica. Oh, you mean it, it, uh, talk about how she treats Jean Luc? I'm sorry, I thought you just yes, yeah. yeah. Well, no, they, she should also get a replicator. She absolutely should get a replicator. All right, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> an eye to the future, an eye to the past. Yeah, there, there should be room for both in this life. I, I, you know, like I said before, I don't think Star Trek is really making a statement in this episode about technology or you know versus the old ways. But it's a great way to illustrate the differences between these two characters. It, it, it isn't the reason that they fight. The reason they don't see eye to eye is that Jean-Luc is an overachiever who left his big brother in the dust. Mm-hmm. You know, They can both enjoy uh, – they both do enjoy certain conveniences and they both enjoy certain hardships. As rough as Robert's life may be compared to sitting on the Hilton in space um, – Robert is still living in a fabulous house in a beautiful part of the world, making apparently pretty fantastic wine. <laughs> That's still a pretty good life. Yeah. You know? I, there's, I don't think it's fair to say that Jean-Luc is an overachiever who left his big brother in the dust. His big brother chose to sit in the dust. At what, and well, he doesn't think he chose to. He says it was his job. It was yeah, his job yeah. to look after Jean-Luc. But that was actually their father's job. Yeah. I mean, he he decided on some role for himself. And what's difficult is you're talking about when they're children. I mean, let's go back again. Let's assume there's only like a two-year difference between them or a three-year difference. You can't really, you know, say to a four-year-old, okay, how are you going to be for the rest of your life? Because how you deal with your brother right now is kind of who you're going to be from now on. At the same time, I mean, he became an adult at some point and could have said, you know what? Nuts to this. Let him take care of the vineyards if you want to. I'm going to go off into space. 
I mean, it's so it's uh, it's a different. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. forgive me. When you said that he left his brother in the dust, mm, his brother stayed there. And then when you say if he hadn't had you know Robert to push him, I mean, it becomes a question. Then I mean, what does it mean to be happy? Does Picard have to be a starship captain to be happy, or is that the path that his happiness took at this point? Could he have stayed there and and run the vineyard and been just as happy if he hadn't been, if he hadn't had this older brother, you know? constantly bullying him into doing something else. Have you ever heard of the song Talk Talk by the band Talk Talk? I have no idea why that is in my memory circuits right now. Lots of talking in this episode, John. I would say no more talking in our episode of Mission Log than we normally do. But boy, oh boy, was there lots of talking in this episode of Star Trek. Uh, And time now for us to talk about all that talking. Family, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, It holds up perfectly well, but I I think as we've touched on, it holds up even better as a third part of a trilogy. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, because you have to... You have to accept that something terrible happened to Picard, and, and by ending Best of Both Worlds with that shot of him looking out the window and just that sense of unease, it, it would have been horrible if they had just picked it up with the next adventure of the week. Oh, the Enterprise is fine, and we're off to do another thing, and oh, there's Q. Or, you know, <laughs> it would have really felt empty. And, and this is, we, we've been within the turning point of Star Trek Next Generation for a while now, yeah. but this is even more of that turning point. Um, I feel like this is an episode where we literally could just go scene by scene and discuss every single thing that's happening. We tend to paint with a broader brush on Mission Log. Um, so maybe this is one where you can corner us sometime and just say, but about that scene and that one thing happening there. Yeah, it was great. Um, because the episode was so dense and it's really that good. The Jack Crusher scene works kind of up to a point. Uh, it's okay, but it's not great. Um I have to say about the Rajinkos, you know, Loaxana was introduced as a comedic character, but it didn't really work for us. Mm-hmm. Worf parents are also comic relief, but for some reason, and maybe it's the small dose of them, they really work because they really illuminate something about Worf. Mm-hmm. I think with Loxana, it doesn't really illuminate something about Deanna. It's just Deanna going, oh, mom, back off, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But with this, you really uh, get that whole picture of who Worf is and what his internal struggle is like. Um, last week, I felt trepidation that we wouldn't be able to do justice to such a wildly popular episode like Best of Both Worlds. And, and now I feel like this is something where we would have to sit down and and do a, a moment by moment <laughs> commentary to really pick this one apart. It, it's so good, and uh, watching it for the first time again for Mission Log um, really struck me emotionally, and, and I just kept going back and rewatching and rewatching, and not even in order, just kind of scene to scene sometimes. Um, to watch the performances here. So it, it, it really hits on, on all levels. And I have to say that, you know, for a lot of people who, who will say, well, Star Trek is, is about space and it's about exploring, it's about this. Well, Star Trek is also about humanity. And I think we need those grounded episodes on Earth 
or or something that is familiar and earth-like um to really dig deep into these characters to to sort of cement our bond with the characters and this does it exceptionally well because there is so much that is relatable how about you well you got a couple of things going on um this was my enterprise this was my star trek and so to get to know these characters more to get to understand these characters more to suffer through some things with these characters and that's everything from you know the embarrassment uh, that war feels when his parents show up at work to you know uh, sort of the bigger things that happen of course with with jean-luc and 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 having a family that doesn't seem to quite understand him but i mean they love him but doesn't seem to quite understand him. I mean, that all resonates, uh, you know, mostly because I'm human and so are they. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is you say that uh, Gene Roddenberry was against this idea. And I don't blame him hmm. necessarily because, I mean, Star Trek is changing into something. I mean, it's it, 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 much better storytelling, much better action, uh, arguably better writing, and less corpomite. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're getting mm-hmm. now. We're getting now to a place where we're getting big story arcs. We're now to a, to a place where we're getting big, and I, and I know we're going to come across them again. We're going to meet a lovable little alien at some point, and we're going to have to decide whether he should. We should send him back to kill all of the other aliens just like him, mm-hmm. or if we should show some mercy. And that's going to be a fascinating thing to discuss from a from a from a messages, morals, and meanings, you know, sort of approach. Yeah, but. We're not doing that in this episode. Now, as as part three of a of a three part saga, this is absolutely fascinating. Especially when you look at we talked about why we did Best of Both Worlds as a two part. I mean, as a mm-hmm. one part thing, right? Because the first one was a whole lot of really amazing, interesting character study. Second part was a whole lot of action. Okay, well, Act Three is actually wow. What just happened? Yeah. Right. So I mean, they really do work as sort of a bookend thing. But when you when you set this up as its own episode, it sort of goes back to um, sitting on the edge of forever. Great episode, absolutely mm-hmm. great episode. This is it a great Star Trek episode? It's a great character episode. Hmm. Mm, I'm not sure we're doing Star Trek at this point. Exactly. It's wonderful. I love it. Yeah. I get why Gene Roddenberry might have been like. What are you guys doing? Are you turning it into a soap <laughs> opera for crying out loud? Because guess what? It's kind of a soap opera. It's a yeah. wonderful one. And again, I spent summers when I was in high school watching Guiding Light. I'm not saying anything bad about <laughs> soap operas. I'm saying um, this has to be a, a definite point where, uh, where 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 Gene would have maybe felt like this is this is going in a direction that I wasn't. He liked the anthology show, right? Yeah. This is not that. If you watch this episode, you don't know what they're talking about with the Borg, unless you watch the Borg, and maybe it's a different in tele- difference in television. We've talked about how different television is from the 60s to the 80s, and now moving into the 90s with this episode. I love it. It's fantastic. I can also see why there might have been some trepidation. Sure, sure. I mean, um, you know, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Star Trek. Yeah. Um, we, we got to say, oh, look, they're getting older. But they're they're still jumping around the galaxy and they're still doing the things that they love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an episode that says doing those things that we love to see them do can really take a toll. Yes. <laughs> you know um, that it, it can be absolutely traumatic and horrible, and and we have to deal with that. But 
And we've talked repeatedly about the fact that we only got that with the original series um, once we got to the movies. And even then, we didn't really get it in the movies. We got it in 2, 3, and 4. But then all of a sudden, we're rebooting in Star Trek V. I mean, we do get some interesting character stuff still in Star Trek V because that's when we find out that McCoy killed his dad. Um, I mean, not, not like, you know... No. Yeah. <laughs> not, not like an Oedipus yes. kind of thing, more like, yeah. you know, oh, I had to kill him to save him, but then, oh, I could have saved him anyway, and it's tragedy, and it's terrible. Right. But, I mean, we kind of we kind of restarted again there, and yes, this is a very different thing. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think maybe it serves to expand the definition of Star Trek, mm. you know, because if Star Trek is... If Star Trek is the anthology show in which a spaceship goes to other planets and does something and we talk about the moral, mm-hmm. okay, then, then that's one thing. But as Star Trek got bigger and bigger and the scope got broader and broader, partly because of those movies like 2, 3, and 4 that expanded who the characters were, what they were capable of, and what they were feeling, mm-hmm. then this is this is Star Trek, the the, the bigger tent the bigger umbrella under which all these shows and character ideas fit. Because this is a Star Trek that says, okay, now we're really saying something else about the human condition. And and maybe in this case it is specified to this one particular character, but we are saying something about family. Of course, that's why this episode is called Family. Mm-hmm. But we are saying something about what it means to be a person with a family. And, and in this case, a lot of dysfunctional families. You know, <laughs> War, Worf's family isn't dysfunctional in the way that they argue with each other, but but Worf has this imposed distance with his family, and and bless them, they they keep reaching out to him and they keep trying and they they keep being there to support him. It's great to see. And Wesley's family isn't dysfunctional because there is a problem there, but but he grew up with this loss, with this this hole in his family, and we've seen pieces of him dealing with that. Um, I wish that the episode hadn't just sort of ended with the reaching out for the hologram that isn't there. Yeah. Because it's more interesting than to know what Wesley was impacted by seeing that than to just see the message, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, I I think I I get where you're coming from. and And I kind of do agree with you that we have to ask ourselves if it's great, Star Trek. It is a great soap opera. It is a great character piece. Yeah. It's, it's critical it, too. And I don't right. And I don't want I mean I don't want to sound like I'm bashing it. It's just something that I was questioning about the episode. It's a wonderful episode. It is a yeah. I mean again, going back to City on the Edge of Forever. That is a wonderful episode. Yeah. It's a fantastic episode. Well, it's a fantastic episode. Is it a fantastic episode of Star Trek? Is it a Star Trek story? Yeah, that's Ah, that's maybe it sounds nitpicky. It's just I get when you tell me that Gene Roddenberry was against this idea, and then we go back to talk about all the things that sort of like he didn't seem to like about some of the stuff that had happened in Next Gen, yeah, or or what happened in Star Trek Six for that matter. I mean, right. I kind of I get right. I get I can feel that difference in this episode, and I love it, and I also understand why it would have been uh, why it would have been sort of scary. So you sort of seeped a little bit into messages there. You, what, like, what's, talk to me about messages. I did. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, not to try to be funny or glib about it, but uh, no matter how horrible they are, they're still family. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll, uh, I'll be horribly glib about it. I, there, there, okay. there are two ways to take what Picard says at the end. He's like, so uh, I belong up in the stars, and if I ever forget that again, I know where to go. And, and you know, either that is because Robert pushes me the best to be the best person I can be, 
yeah. or the horribly glib is because when I'm here, where I want to be most <laughs> is <laughs> off this planet. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, not not myself, but I know people who kind of say, you know, when I go back home, mm -hmm. that's when I realize that I belong someplace else. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, 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 I hear what you are saying. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there might be another message. Okay. Um, don't don't be a, a jealous bastard mm -hmm. uh, of others' success or of others' choices. Right. You know, um, Robert's got a real problem. He really does. Um, and if these were not fictional characters, I'd feel truly horrible for Renee and Marie. I would say to them, look, you, you may need to rethink your living situation. Yeah, maybe, except you got the whole thing. I mean, Robert has decided what's right for Jean-Luc, and Robert yeah. knows how he is with Jean-Luc, but he may have also decided how he was going to not be, you know, the same sort of horrible father that his father was, if his father was horrible, or maybe his father was fantastic. I mean, we actually don't know much about... We do know that Robert seems to sort of be modeling himself on his idea of what his father was, maybe in the same way that Worf models himself of his idea of what Klingons are. I mean, Picard says that Jean-Luc says that he remembers some of the arguments that uh, Robert is having with uh, Marie as being arguments that were happening between his mother and father. Uh, so maybe Robert saw that and thought, hmm, not going to be that way with my kid. I'll keep being that way to my brother. <laughs> but I'm not going to be, eh, so. But you're right. I'm way arguing that as if this guy actually exists. <laughs> my bad. I do love, uh, I do love the idea, though, that... Um you know, one eye to the past, one eye to the future, and there being room for both in this life. Mm -hmm. that, it, it's nice, you know. Again, I, I don't think, I don't think we were making a statement about it. And Star Trek comes out in favor of this, but but just as sort of a, a, a nice thing to sort of keep in the back of your head. Um, I think that uh, that works here as well. So I, I agree. I'd say I'd say those messages hold up. All right. Well, here's another good thing to keep in the back of your head. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Please, please, please find out more at Roddenberry.com. I sounded a little desperate there, didn't I? It's okay. There's, there's desperation every now and then. I'll tell you what. Find out more there if you want to or don't. <laughs> Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to visit Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Brothers. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Jean-Luc tells Marie that he's decided not to take the job with Louis. <clears throat> job. He's very French. He's very French. Pas de travail avec lui. <laughs> and transmission. Jack. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.